morning. I'm Mike Del Vecchio, and I'm a member of the Elder Board or Session, and I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word today. I don't know if this is going to, ah, it shows up good there. It doesn't show up here. I can't read it at all. So um, if you have a Bible um, or electronic device of some sort, if you want to turn to Luke 20, um, we're reading, reading 9 through 18. Um, we continue on in our sermon series, The Gospel is Told by Luke. Um, we're going verse by verse, and now we're to chapter 20. And um, now we'll read God's word. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers or tenants, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. They sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May it never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us in the written word, and you've spoken to us in the word of your Son. We want to praise your name now and thank you for that. I pray, Father, that you will um, give me clarity of speech and of mind as I bring your word to your people here. I pray for all of our hearts that they'll be open and they'll be soft and changeable by you. We pray that your spirit will be work, at work in us and changing us and making, more, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week, Scott Ashman um, set the stage for this, this time in Luke here. It's the last... Um, week of Jesus' life, called the Passion Week. Um, things are coming to a head. Um, there's a lot of conflict going on. The religious leaders there want Jesus dead, basically, yet the people are still hanging on every word. And he then tells this parable. He then tells this parable. Um, so, you know, as you read it, um, you say, well, what do we have here? We have certainly a history lesson. Um, it seems clear that Jesus is talking about Israel. Um, he raises them up, plants a vineyard, raises them up, gives them a good land to live in where they thrive, sends them, um, and yet they rebel. Yet they rebel. They reject him. Um, he sends them messengers, though, one after the other, prophets, priests, even some godly kings. And finally, Jesus now prophesies that the only son will be sent and will be killed by them. So, there you go. Done. I think there's more here, obviously, than that. Um, so what are some other things we can learn? Well, one thing we can certainly see is uh, an example of boldness. See, Jesus, these guys want to kill him. And this is the story, you say? Not a good idea. Um, so maybe this is an example of being bold and telling the truth or being bold and proclaiming Christ, even when it means danger for you, and in Jesus' case, death. 
But if you recall, a couple weeks ago, Matt Franchetti spoke about the whole what would Jesus do phenomenon and uh, basically pointed out that Jesus isn't just a good example. If you just try to follow Jesus as an example, you're not going to make it, okay? What Jesus did say, though, in John 14, 6, is that I'm the way, I'm not a, I'm on a way to God. My words aren't a way to God. He says, I am the way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. All right, maybe we can learn something about leaders here. Because clearly these tenants are the religious leaders that he's referring to. And certainly here at New Life, with some of the things we've been through, we should certainly bear that in mind. So here's just a few things that I thought of referred to, especially religious leaders, from this parable. First is that the position of leadership does not confer godly insight or behavior automatically. Second, the position of leadership does not confer an absence of temptation. Temptation. And lastly, the position of leadership does not confer an altered moral standard at any level. So, examine your leaders, pray for them, and boldly confront them. However, there's a lot more than that. You're not done yet, okay? There's a lot more for this parable. There's always more when you're reading God's Word. You probably have experienced that before. A verse you've read many times, you read again and go, wow, I never saw that before. Well, it is God's Word. What we see here, I think, is sheer brilliance on the part of Jesus, and it's not that surprising because he is God. 2,000 years ago, he tells a story that was directly applicable to the people that he's talking about, but it's also directly applicable to us today. What hit me today was that Jesus is basically giving a summary of creation, God's creation, man's fall, and God's redemption. First, God creates when he makes this vineyard, landowner vineyard. Then the fall is pretty obvious here with these tenants. They uh, certainly owe him due, and they refuse to pay. And finally, we see redemption. We see the death of a son, but we also see this strange crushing stone. So today, on the back of your bulletin, um, you have an outline, if you'd like to follow, um, creation, fall, and redemption. As we continue on, the gospel is told by Luke. We're going to talk about creation. It's all, it's all his. It's God's. We're going to talk about the fall and the anatomy of sin. We're going to talk about redemption, the crushed and crushing stone. Again, you have the bulletin if you want to write some notes there. That helps keep you awake. Um, I might say something, too, if I see you asleep. Keep that in mind. All right, creation. God is creator of all things. There's nothing in existence that did not originate from God. Did you see the Olympic thing? They had that um, commercial where they're talking about how all the elements are the same and the whole gold thing and stuff. Did anybody see that commercial? Well... Bottom line is, is, scientifically, we would agree that there's nothing new. That's, there's nothing new in the earth, okay? Um, and we know from Scripture there's nothing here um, that God did not ultimately create. And the way this can kind of be more practical is there's nothing that you have that you were not ultimately given by God. There's nothing that you have that you were not ultimately given by God. God created man or humans in their, his own image to display God's glory. What is the chief end of man, or what is the chief end of man, and what is the purpose of man? We talk of in the catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What this means is it's all about God and not about you. It's all about God and not about you. The purpose of all things is God. If you don't align yourself with that fact, you're heading for a disaster. On a more positive sense, if you want to follow the path to true joy, to fulfillment, to meaning, then align yourself with the fact that it's all about God and not about you. But I suspect there's no one in this room that doesn't struggle with that. I know I do. 
And that's due to the fall. Okay? The fall is clearly a big part of the story today. Um, that's Jesus takes up most of the, of the parable with that. Now, I want to take some time today looking at the fall or what we may call original sin. Now, just to give credit where credit is due, basically everything I'm going to now talk about in regards to the fall and original sin is from a pastor in New York City called Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. Okay. I tell you that to give him credit, give credit where credit is due. But also, if you really want to hear it eloquently, just email me and I'll send you the sermon. All right. So, Eichmann is in all of us. Eichmann is in all of us. You have to be my age or older to remember this, probably. But in 1961, Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi SS leader and sort of the mastermind behind the Holocaust, he was captured. I think it was Argentina, but he was captured and put on trial. Yehil Denor um, was a death camp survivor, and he came to testify. And you can see this video on YouTube. Um, he's testifying uh, against um, Eichmann, and Eichmann's over here across the way, and Denor's here. And all of a sudden, um, Denor falls out. He just hits the floor. They have to come and drag him out and take him out and everything. Um, so 20 years later, I don't remember who interviewed him. I don't know if it was Mike Wallace or somebody. He gets interviewed by one of these TV guys. And this interviewer says, why did you fall apart? Was it hatred? Was it fear? And the interviewer, you can tell, is shocked by the response of Denor. Because Denor says, no, no, no. When I saw him, I realized this, this is not a demon. This is not a Superman. This is not someone just like me. This is, this is someone just like me. And if he is capable of this evil, so am I. And then he says, Eichmann is in all of us. Eichmann is in all of us. Well, Mr. Denor's assessment certainly agrees with the Bible, which talked about it much more before he ever did, and in lots of details. So let's look at a few passages that speaks to this, being in all of us. From Psalm 14:3. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. How about Psalm 53, 3? They've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All right, let's go to the New Testament. I'm sure we'll find something different there. Psalm, Romans 3:12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or corrupt. No one does good, not even one. God says the same statement three times in his word. Do you think he's trying to get something across? Um, and the Bible, we could just, we could go on. The Bible makes it the fact of original sin clear in many, many other places. The truth is, is that the doctrine of original sin, this is a foundational truth. Understanding and accepting the truth of original sin, well, that changes everything. First, you know you need a Savior. And today, if you've never trusted Jesus to take away your sin, your original sin, deal with that, deal with it now. Go to him even as you're sitting where, where you are even now. Go to God. Let him know, repent, and believe. But the fact that original sin is also important in our day-to-day -day lives for those who are followers of Jesus. By examining it, we can know ourselves better. It will equip us to dig deeply into ourselves and root out sin that we need to fight against. So, I've mentioned this before, frequently little things happen. The week before I preach, I'll have little experiences, and it's like, uh, that was just too close. I guess that, I guess. That came for a reason. So here's an example of the rooting out this sin that happened to me, oh, yesterday. And this is what Grace was supposed to be here for, but that's okay. You can, I'll have her listen to this. Um, so yesterday, uh, my son Luke over there, um, I wanted to take him for a walk, but it was so hot outside, you got to wear him out with his autism and stuff. So um, I took him for a walk on the treadmill. 
well, I couldn't find the little thingy that you plug in to make it go. And I knew Grace had used it last, she had told me. And I, could, I looked and I looked and I couldn't find it. And, you know, what, is it, what, is, what am I thinking? I'm going, listen, I feed these guys, I clothe them, I give them a roof over the head. The least they could do is put things back where they belong. She'll regret having said that now. Read between the lines is, show me respect and the gratitude that I am due. So what do I do? Grace! I yell her name. She comes hobbling, she comes running down because she heard the tone. I, you know, I say, you know, um, you know, come on, you know, can't you put these things back where they belong, you know? She said, oh, mom gave it to me. She didn't know where it went. (laughs) So what's going on in my heart here? That's the question. What's in the heart level? Why do I respond in in this way? This need for respect, this need for control, and that's what we want to look at today. So keep that in mind. From Genesis 3, you can read that, but I can't. So Genesis 3, we'll see where all this started. The fall of man. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Oh, this will be different than that, but that's okay. He said to the woman, I mean, it's a different version. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the gar- from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here's the fall. Clearly they mess up. This is sin. The rest of the Bible gives ramifications of this and also what God did about it. But let's look more deeply, more carefully at what happened here. When we examine this carefully, we'll see several aspects of sin. We'll first see what we'll call the root of sin, um, or think of as the soil or base of sin, which all other things, all other sins grow out from. There's a second aspect that we'll call the essence of sin, and that sort of more dramatically is what happens with our sin. So first, the ground or root of sin. Back in Genesis 2, we see the command, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve had one rule, one law. That's really paradise in and of itself, if you think about it. They said it was don't eat from this one tree. But note one thing. God doesn't say why. God doesn't say why. That's a very important fact. So here I quote, God did not want them to obey so that they would get something from it. He was not interested in simply self-interested compliance. He wanted their obedience to flow from a complete trust in him. A trust that says, I may not understand the why of something, but I will, will respond in obedience out of loving trust anyway. If he had told them that the food was poison, if he had told them that they were going to screw us all up, well, maybe they would have done it for a reason. They would have said, well, you know, either for our own benefit, we won't do this, or for the benefit of our prodigy, I won't do it, but not simply for God and their relationship 
with him. So we see this lie that developed. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you shall not surely die. So which is it? It's one of the, either you're dying or you're not. There's kind of a not a lot of gray area there. So there's not two possibilities here. The serpent is saying you can't trust God. You can't give yourself fully to him. Therefore, you're on your own. You're an orphan. And that's the lie that is in all human hearts. Our hearts say we cannot utterly trust God and we are on our own. That is the lie. Hey, let me do a little test here. This is from a um, uh, from John Piper, his daily uh, readings, uh, Solid Joys, I think it's called. So let's read this and see how this hits you. I'll read this and we'll see how it hits you. Ruler of all nature, the lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the Lord. In modern language, we would say the dice are rolled on the table and every play is decided by God. There are no events so small that he does not rule for his purposes. That's God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus said, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Every roll of the dice in Las Vegas, every tiny bird that falls dead in a thousand, in a thousand forests, all of this is God's command. In the book of Jonah, God commands a fish to swallow, God commands a plant to grow, and God commands a worm to kill it. And far above the life of worms, the stars take their place and hold their place at God's command. How much more than the natural events of this world, from weather to disasters to disease to disability to death, let us therefore stand in awe. As I read that, does that cause you any pause? Do you squirm in any way? That's the lie. That's the lie. Do you trust God to be the God that the Bible says that he is? Here's some other ways that this might be expressed in your life, I know in mine. Overworking, workaholism. You don't trust God and his love for his provision for you. How about criticizing others? You have to bolster your own view of self because you do not trust God to get that self-worth from him. And I know this one none of you will have a problem with. How about controlling things in your life like family, children, health, finances, everything, and yet you're eaten up with anxiety because you don't trust God to give you the deep sense of safety? And I could go on. Do you trust God? This is the lie, this is the lie, that God is not trustworthy. That is at the center of the human heart. It's the prerequisite or the root or soil that brings forth all the other wrong that we do. So what is that wrong that we do? Well, it's sin. So the light, the, the, the lie is, a, is the root. Now let's talk about the essence of sin. So the definition of sin would be breaking God's law, right? Simple. Well, not until Jesus showed up. Jesus said it was much deeper than that, much deeper than that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about um, not committing adultery, not committing murder. But he says, don't be angry. Don't say, you fool. Do not lust. So what, is in, so what is in the heart that leads us to the actual behavior or outward sin? What is this in our hearts? We see it in the parable here. They said, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They essentially want to be the new landowner, the boss, or God. In the Genesis passage, we see it even clearer. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. That is what we are all after. We want to put ourselves in the place that only God should be. We put ourselves in the center. We want to be the ultimate authority in our lives. You probably never heard anybody say, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) That is the essence of sin. Sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. Sin is making everything center on us instead of God. Sin is our trying to be our own Savior and Lord. Martin Luther, and I didn't know um, Tim was going to pray that prayer. Martin Luther was a German theologian from the 1500s and a leader of this thing called the Protestant Reformation, which was essentially bringing Christianity back to the Bible. He describes our state in regards to the essence of sin. And he has this famous saying, and yes, it's another Latin lesson. Incurvitus say. Incurvitus say, which Latin for curved in on oneself or curved in on itself. I'm quoting Luther here. Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that we wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seek to use all things, even God, for ourselves. All things, even God, for our own sake. Our self-centeredness is the essence of sin. Okay, so immediately I talk about self-centeredness is the essence of sin, and you think of some people. You think of greedy people? That's kind of self-centered. Um, if you know anybody or live with anybody who's struggling with an addiction, um, you see that frequently their life is very self-centered. A murderer, that's kind of self-centered, I would say. Wicked tyrants, um, they would be self-centered. But this is God and his word, so things go much deeper than that. Much deeper than that. So let's dig a little deeper. Remember the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Epic film? Anyone? There you go. All right, all the guys do. All right. So, anyway, for the human race in our discussion here, we've only got the good and the bad. All right? So the bad first. And that's easy in our society. We see it all around us today in our culture. We will be our own savior through living as we see fit. That might be through sex in whatever form we like it. It might be through greed and material things. It may be simply by saying, I can live however I want. I don't believe in any outside force that has any sort of say on my life. But remember, in Curvitus say, we use everything for ourselves. So we can also live this out by being very, very good. Self-centeredness can be the motivation for being moral, good, nice, and even generous. And I quote, there's no better way to control people, control things around you, than by being very, very nice. There's no better way of demanding that people respect or hear you than being, being very good. There's no better way to get people to do what you want than to be incredibly self-sacrificing. But what we are really doing is using others for our own sake. Examine your heart. Examine your heart. As a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ask him to show you your heart, and he will. Are you being very, very good so that others, including God, are in your debt in some way? Here's a little test. Have you ever been frustrated that you have been very giving and self-sacrificing and yet things didn't turn out, things turned out poorly? In those times, do you struggle with believing that God loves you? There you are, curved in heart. Is there any time that you say, I will serve God, but, well, whatever's on the other side of that but is your real God, your real savior, savior. You're using God. 
purposes say. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And again, according to that epic film, The Prince's Bride, what is the essence of love? As you wish, right. So Buttercup, the beautiful daughter, would order the farm boy Wesley around mercilessly. And how would Wesley respond? As you wish. And then the narrator of the movie would say, every time Wesley said, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you, I love you. When you really love someone, you do things for them simply to see the joy on their face. Not to get anything for yourself. It's about relationship. It's about intimacy. We should look on the Ten Commandments, Christian, you should look on the Ten Commandments not as drudgery, not as constraint, but actually romantically. Romantically. Think about that a while. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice. It changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So, we've seen in Jesus' parable creation and the fall, and now let's move on to redemption. Jesus just introduces the great redemption or salvation, the actual parable, and then we'll, we'll flesh it out more. Back to Luke 20. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So finally, in this parable, we'll see Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of God's only begotten Son. And here again, we see the lie of Satan, not trusting God. And we see the essence of sin, wanting to be our own God. We see that the one time that God makes himself vulnerable to humans, we kill him. We see him killed, but in the parable, we're not told why. But those of us on this side of the cross, on this side of history, we know why Christ died. But what about this stone thing? Well, we specifically are told what it's about by a man who was there. So in 1 Peter 2, we have telling us what the, what the whole stone thing is. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So what does Jesus say he will do? He's talking about himself. He either crushes you or grinds you to powder. Both do not sound very appealing to me. But we must consider where we are coming from as we come to Jesus the stone. We're enemies. We're traitors. We want to take God's place. We don't trust God to love us. Consider this. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most humbling fact in the universe. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most humbling fact in the universe. We are so broken that nothing less than the very death of God himself can redeem us. To come to Jesus, you must be broken. To come to Jesus, you must be broken. Broken with the truth of your true brokenness and that you are a sinner. 
that you've believed the lie, and that you've tried to put yourself in God's place. So trust in this great redemption and be a living stone, not crushed. Now, I would be amiss, of course, not to really pass on clearly Jesus' warning. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Last week, Scott made this quite clear when he spoke of rejecting Jesus. I think he had the complete rejector, right? And that complete rejector ultimately had nothing but judgment ahead of him. If you do not come to Jesus in your brokenness, if you refuse the Son, you have no ultimate hope. In the final judgment of all things, you will be crushed. From Philippians 2. And being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow before Jesus someday, either voluntarily or not. Let's look back at the story a minute. Look how patient God was. God is merciful. Today is a day of salvation. Do not ignore, ignore God's call. Come to him through Jesus' son. First from Mark 1. Scott had talked about this last week as well. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. This is how Jesus started his early ministry, repent and believe. Of course, repent or turn from obvious sins we think of, greed, lies, covetousness, which means wanting other people's stuff, anger. But go deeper. And repent of why you do right. Yes, repent of why you do right. Repent of doing right when it is simply another way of being your own Savior and Lord. When you're seeking to somehow put God into your debt. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. Well, as we close, I'm sure some of you are saying, okay, Mike, some of you may say this, I agree with you. I know I need to trust God. I know I should do good things, not to get God's stuff, but simply out of love for God, but I struggle with that. Does anybody struggle with that? Well, I do. So let's talk about it. What is the second thing that Jesus called people to do? He said believe, or for sake today, we're going to say trust. It really goes back to the very beginning. Do you trust God? Do you trust God's promises? Do you really believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lord? You may be saying, sure I do, but... Okay, try this. Talk to yourself. Yeah, talk to yourself. Um, you read the Psalms. Meditate, ponder the Psalms. This is the prayer book that God has given to us. I know that there's some strange parts, but don't let that discourage you. God shows us in the Psalms that he knows us. He shows us that he wants us to come to him at all times, no matter what the state of your hearts are or your mind. All human emotions are found in the Psalms. From Psalm 42, this is just portions of it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I did this a few weeks ago. I was feeling down. I think it's that groundhog, Jim. Got this groundhog eating my greens up. I don't know. So I said, I just couldn't shake it. So I said, why are you cast down on my soul? I read the psalm. I went to the psalms. I went to God. I went to my father. So talk to yourself. Talk to God. Let us look at some of the things God has to say. So um, some things that can guide you in your self-conversations and your prayers. From Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian, child of God, follower of Jesus, it's all about God. He saved you by his grace through the death of his son. He started it. He will finish it. Trust God. Famous passage from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Very famous passage and a lot of big theological words. But what it basically means is this. is God planned your salvation from before time began. And this salvation is unbreakable chain. If you are forgiven in Jesus then you will become more like him during this lifetime, and you will finally become completely like him and perfect in every way. Trust God. Another famous passage from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think back on our passage today. Consider the great lengths that God has gone through so that you could be with him. God is so patient. He calls and he calls. And then he sends his son. He did not spare his own son. Jesus was crushed so you would not have to be. Do you trust God? Now, I had mentioned this hymn to Bob. I didn't know he was going to sing it. I wondered if he was going to sing it. But he did not know that I was going to read the whole thing. Now, I didn't make it. i never able to sing this song without dry eyes, so I don't think I'm going to be able to read it. I will try. Um, but you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different outcome. And since I can't ever sing this song without crying, we'll see if I can read it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. <laughs> My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. <laughs> Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. 
My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Jesus was rejected, so you would not have to be. Jesus was crushed, so you would not have to be. Listen, if the essence of sin is our trying to take God's place, the essence of salvation is God coming in Jesus Christ to take our place. So come to Jesus in all your brokenness and be healed, made whole. Repent of the wrong, of your wrong, and why you do right. Do not believe the lie today. Trust God. Believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ are overwhelming. I pray, Father, that we'll just see these truths as beautiful. We'll see these truths as wonderful. And we won't see following you as drudgery, but we'll see following you as just simply an expression of the wonder of our love for you. Be with us now, I pray. I pray you'll touch our hearts and change us, that we may be more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.